Greetings, Earth. Welcome to the Nostalgiaverse. Hello and welcome. I'm Kat, and here with me is Alex. Hello. Today we have a special guest who created a very interesting and fun little game, card game, called Time Wars. Welcome, Bijan. Hi. Hi. (laughs) So, okay. Tell us the story. How did Time Wars come about? So it's pretty much rooted in two separate things that converged. The first was just the the little nugget that everything spun out of was the idea of the the Time Wars, the Great Time War in in Doctor Who. And they they did a great job of making it mysterious and really capturing the imagination of all the possibilities. But I couldn't help but wonder about the specifics, like what is it? What does a, a battle in a time war look like? What are your goals? How do you set about actually committing those goals? And what does it look like to fight back, to, to resist against that? And so that always in the back of my mind. And that's what I drew upon when I had a group of friends who had real, we were making a lot of, doing a lot of role-playing games. And we'd played a little Star Trek. We'd played a little Star Wars, a little Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. And we found things that we sort of liked about all of them and disliked about each of them. And they asked me to try and make a, a, a you know, science fiction universe and a role-playing game system that you know, would really capture their imaginations and address the limitations we'd found in so many other games. And so that was the first Time Wars game of any kind was the role-playing game Time Wars Strike Team. That was the, the first Time Wars game we had, and it's actually available free on our website now. Really easy to play, not very much to learn, but it really focuses on the characters whose motivations are to go back in time in a br- little brief little window and to actively change history to try and improve it. It requires not only understanding how history works, but also what it looks like to improve the human condition for in, in history. Kind of like Quantum Leap, in a way. Very much so. You know, I, I loved watching that show growing up. And, and it's, it's a really fascinating show. You, you got this guy jumping into body after body of people who are powerful in some ways. And then he's got, he jumps into people who are oppressed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> as, as funny as it is to see uh, uh, Scott Bakula in a dress with earrings, like the, that episode was fan- phenomenal. All those episodes where he, he had to oh, yeah. literally live in the shoes of women. And and actively one of them was pregnant. One of them was exactly. I love that. Which was hysterical. I love that. It's a great science fiction show for for showing what it's like to to step into other people's shoes and have an effect on history. And so you know that was really influenced by by a lot of really great science fiction, all the way from Quantum Leap to Spider Man. You know things from Mm -hmm. from as diverse as the books that DC Fontana wrote for Star Trek. You know in the seventies, all the way up to Power Rangers. Like everything's in the mix when it comes to Time Wars. And so drawing on all those really wonderful characters and all those, those amazing, basically standing on the shoulders of giants, I was able to, to find all these things that worked in all these different kinds of media that I really loved. And they slowly, I, I mean, I hesitate to say that even I did the piecing together. It was almost like they did it on their own. The, the characters, the setting, the, the larger 
themes about humanity and, and our individual roles in society, they just sort of came together. They, they just fit together like puzzle pieces. And soon I was writing books and programming a video game. And now I've got the, the card game Kickstarter, all with the same characters in the same setting, telling one big continuous story that anyone can get involved in. That's very cool. Thank you. That is very, very cool. I am... Um... For our listeners, um, I met her at NorwestCon. Yeah. She had a table. She had a table. And I'm like, okay, what is this? So she goes through the spiel and shows me some of it. I'm like, that is cool. And we got to talking about that. And I told her about Nostalgiaverse. And she's like, oh, hey. So, <laughs> and this is how we ended up here. <laughs> <laughs> Which is very, very cool. <laughs> and I love NorwestCon. I've I've been there, let's see, every year for I wanna say at least five years. And oh, I know wow. I, I know people who've been going there since they were literally infants and are, you know, they're my age now. And yeah. it's it's probably one of my favorite conventions because it's not you know, it's kinda of one of those things where it hasn't blown up yet. So there's not a bunch of corporate interests pulling it apart. Uh, right. You know, tearing it apart at the seams, and so it's sort of this—it's this wonderful. It's a, at this wonderful level where there's so many people that go to it, but it really has a focus on independent creators and the the community of uh, of science fiction writers, people the really gra the grassroots of this industry. Yeah, yeah, and the cool thing with NorwestCon is the fact that it is host to the Philip K. Dick Awards, mm. and they announce the nominees for the Hugo Awards at the con. Absolutely. I love it. It's so real... you've got, you got association with two different literary awards at the con. Yeah, and they're, they're literary awards, which I really appreciate. You know, and in, in an era where we've got three or four different conventions at the Washington State Convention Center every year, and they all have a, a Nintendo booth, they each have an, an EA booth, they each have... Warner Brothers, you know, those are all great companies, but, you know, there's only so many conventions you can have with the, on basically the same line of products. Right. Before people are like, oh, it's just another one of those. Right. And then hey, you that's... get NorwestCon. It's a sci-fi fantasy literary convention. You get You've a so book cool in your stuff. swag bag. I mean, I know. seriously. <laughs> and it was, I started going to NorwestCon in 1994. Yeah, that's amazing. I was, I was 19. And... <laughs> That was my first con. And that was, it was like, I'm home. <laughs> <laughs> that was my reaction. All these people in costume and, and, and doing all this stuff. I'm like, I'm home. <laughs> <laughs> Very much, yeah, that, it, was, it was my first con as well. And I, uh, I definitely spent the entire, that first weekend I ever was at a, a convention. It was at NorwestCon. I spent the whole time wearing a Sonic the Hedgehog hat. Just the maybe, yeah. not not with Sonic the Hedgehog on it. No, like like it had the little ears and the the pointy bit. So I looked like I was Sonic the Hedgehog. <laughs> that is cool. <laughs> I remember that that was released at Hot Topic years ago. Yeah, oh, I, yeah. I don't. I didn't buy it either. I just found it. <laughs> oh, that's even better. Hey, you know. <laughs> Free hat. Winers keepers. Yes. <laughs> and I didn't get lice, so. Yay! <laughs> okay, so take us through a little bit of how the game works. So, in Time War Supreme Command, 
you become a leader in the Time Wars. So, uh, you know, originally I'd made Time Wars Strike Team, the role-playing game, to be about being actually one of the soldiers in the front lines. The game master would play the role of the Supreme Commander setting the goals. And so I thought it'd be fun to try and make a card game that did where you actually got to be the Supreme Commander, not just the agents, and, and actually build your team duel with your opponent over how history would actually turn out, setting your own goals. And I was largely inspired by Magic the Gathering's uh, The Stack, which is itself borrowed from computing. It's, it's basically this mechanic where you're submitting different actions one at a time into uh, a timeline, and then they occur in the order opposite from which they were put in there. So it's, it's basically just trying to manage this sequence of events. And mm-hmm. that was so my. You start oh, at the end of the timeline and you build backwards. Exactly. And so, with that mechanic in mind, I, I had everything centered around that. So, that's the idea is that you're building a version of history using one card at a time. Each, each player can submit a card to the timeline and in any order, whatever they want to do. But you have to make sure that that timeline that you're building is going to meet the needs of the goal cards that you set for yourself. So that's the the key there. Each turn you can do exactly one thing. The most common thing you're going to be doing is either playing a card from your hand or using the ability of a card you already have in play. When you start playing the game, one of the first things you're going to want to do is build up your time core. So you got to recruit time travelers and arm them with temporal age technology. Once you've done that, you can start playing cards into the timeline or just trying to take advantage of the ones that your opponent already has. And those are really interesting. Those are each, some of them are events and some of them are the lives of unique individuals. So, for example, in one version of history, Harriet Tubman may have been born immediately after a legendary war. Whereas in another version of history, Nikola Tesla is born just before her and the legendary war happens after. So you're constantly trying to rearrange these sequence of events to try and add up to goal cards that you play for yourself. So in your hand, you're going to end up having a goal card, and it'll tell you how it's scored one way or the other. At a certain point, you'll have to make the choice to actually put that goal card into play. The, the choice of when to do things is the most critical. You know, it's, a, it's a, a game about time travel, so I wanted it to be so that the focus was not on amassing m- amounts of gold or, or having the most brutal warrior with the best armor. I wanted it to be about timing. So you can only do one thing each turn. It's like chess in that way. It's move, counter, move, move, counter, move. But it's very much like poker in that you're not 100% certain of what your opponent's capacities are because of their hidden hand. When you play that goal card, the next thing that happens is your opponent gets an opportunity to try and thwart it. Mm -hmm. So So when you play that, you better make sure that you're taking the right risk. You'll never know for certain, but <laughs> you're going to try and stack the deck. And, and that's the next part of it is it's the world's first deck stacking game. I, I hate being conventional, so obviously... <laughs> <laughs> so obviously I want to do something where, you know, it's like if I always remember thinking, like, counting cards in, in Vegas, like, why is that such a big deal? Like, that, it's literally just being better at the game than you're allowed to be. I decided to just do away with that concept entirely, so there's no, there's no discard piles in the game. In, in Time War Supreme Command, it's the world's first deck stacking game. When you're done with the card, it goes either on the bottom of your deck or your opponent's. So you're constantly choosing where cards go. You're trying to grab them out of your opponent's deck at the right times. You're try- and so it's, it's a, a matter of trying to control where things go using timing 
rather than brute force. There's no brute force. There's no runaway economy. There's just strategy. And that's really what I wanted to focus in on. It's a strategy game of pure timing and risk assessment. A lot like chess in that way. Yeah, I mean, pretty much the only limitation I see to chess fundamentally is that it's the same every time you set up. Now, right. It is. It has a. There are more chess moves possible than there are stars in the sky. That's a, that's a fact I've heard. Yeah. So chess is a beautiful, wonderful game. But it's. But I consider this almost like a successor game. It really is. It's. Yeah. It's trying to focus in on just the strategy. It's not about yeah. drawing the best card because no card is better than than any other. Because again, there's no economy. You know, there's no you know three gold piece versus two gold piece. There's no giant monster versus a small farmer. It's not, it's not like that kind of a game. Every piece has equal value if applied correctly. And so I, right. I really wanted to make this basically like a really thematic chess 2.0. Hmm. Very cool. <laughs> very, very cool. And you have a Kickstarter. Yeah. And the, the idea, Kickstarter has, has got this, this problem right now where there's so many people who are creating... Uh, Kickstarters without realizing what it takes to actually deliver the final product. And so there's been a lot of people who basically create Kickstarters on empty promises and that they'll, that they'll never really fulfill. To a large degree, I think it's just because of poor planning. So I wanted to plan better. With ours, we had the idea of making a whole game and having it be complete because Time Wars Supreme Command, you know, the idea is with the game that you can customize your experience, you're always going to be able to add new cards, uh, choose what kind of cards you want to use when you play. So we wanted to have our first product out and ready to go to show that we could actually make this. That this is a fun game. That you can sit down and play and have a great time. It'll be delivered right away using a print-on-demand service. We're not raising money for the thing that we're going to send out as a reward. Well, that's already done. What we're raising money for is for the next group of cards. While you're, uh, while the backers are sitting at home playing, you know, Corset Humanity, we'll be mm -hmm. getting to work actually making the next group of cards: Corset Vampire Kind, Deluxe Expansion Z Armor War, and Deluxe Expansion Galactic War. Oh wow! So it's going to be uh, four sets then. It's it's all going to be part of one big package. We've already figured out who the artists are. And we've already figured out what we need to get commissioned. Uh, it's all really deep in the planning process already. So all we really need is just the funds to get going to, to keep working, really. Very, very cool. Yeah, and I actually have a set, uh, Corset Humanity, in my hands. <laughs> it's just a matter of me getting together with a friend of mine to uh, test out a game and then be able to post a review for you, which I hope to be able to do soon. And just looking at some of these cards, it's it's very simple, very straightforward. It all comes down to the person's imagination and how they put it together, just from looking at the cards. Yeah, I mean that's really what I wanted to do. Is is I wanted the, the, probably what I wanted to do is deliver on the promises that Magic made to me. Magic yeah. the Gathering, Magic the Gathering promised me that it would be uh, almost a form of self-expression that you could craft your own win strategies and that your collection would be unique and that you would draw upon that unique particular array of different cards to craft your own uh, strategy. And it, it promised basically to be uh, gaming Legos, really. Um, yeah. 
and that never really materialized because of the rarity component and the numerical mathematical component. A card could yeah. be better or worse than another card because you're paying more for less. I mean, that, that simple concept is, you know, it's, it's phenomenal in a game that is so economically driven and it requires a lot of analysis. It just doesn't quite deliver the experience that I had really been sold on. As much as I love Magic the Gathering, I love playing it. I can't quite keep up with it because of finances. You know, it's a pretty expensive game to try and keep up with. I yeah. wanted to try and, and capture that, that feeling I had in the original, that, that you could take any piece in that game and you could find some way to apply it. And that's what I wanted to do with this game is that there's no card that's fundamentally better or worse than any other, that they all have some application and all you have to do is figure out how to use it in the context that you have. Right. And each card applies differently depending on what your goals are and the other cards that you have in play versus what your opponent has in play. Right. It's all about context. Right? I mean, that's something about, that I learned about history, right? It's all about mm -hmm. context. <laughs> oh, oh yeah. Yeah. I know when I, the first time I ever played a game of magic was this guy had a, a, a red green deck and he handed me this black thrall deck had four breeding pits in it. I managed to get all four breeding pits plus several creatures out, occupied his creatures with my creatures, and then overran him with thrall tokens and <laughs> kicked his butt. And that was my first time playing. Yeah. <laughs> and he's like, how did you do that? I'm like, I didn't want to tell him that I have a analytical puzzle-oriented logic right. brain that thinks on strategy <laughs> levels that yeah <laughs> i didn't want to tell him that because he thought oh it's a she's a girl she doesn't know <laughs> you know how to do this and i'll i'll, I'll just test i'll test this because he wanted to test his red green deck and i kicked his butt right <laughs> he's like how did you do that and i'm like I you know that's funny i actually I, I use uh white and artifact tokens as is my main strategy in, in magic mm -hmm. I think that's the best return on your money really yeah yeah <laughs> um but yeah, that was my first time playing, and I have a number of, of Magic cards, and my son, who turns 15 uh, in July, he's he plays Magic as well. I'm, so. Right now I'm working on a fan RPG for that only uses Magic cards, mm -hmm. so it'd be, it's like it's an RPG like, like Dungeons & Dragons, but it only uses Magic cards, no dice or nothing like that. And that basically, I want to try and use that to bring new life to the, all the commons I've accumulated over the years. You know, I've got all these yeah. commons. They have no competitive use, but I love the artwork. And, they, you know, they're cute little cards, and I want to find some way to use them. So I think, uh, you know, there's lots of room for creativity there. One of the things that I did, speaking of that, because I run second edition AD&D campaign. Yeah, who runs second edition anymore? <laughs> um, everybody's well, on the fifth. <laughs> yeah, me. Um, well, when they did third edition and 3.5, they kind of broke the game. Right. Because yeah. it it turned into something completely different and you end up with these overpowered characters that you just you, there's nothing you can do with it. It's very prone to that. And fourth edition didn't do much better. And I'm just kind of looking at fifth edition going, <laughs> I'll just stick with second, first, first and second and second edition revised. But I created my own campaign world kind of based on, you know, different books and different things that, that I had 
read and things out of my own imagination. And one of the things that I did was start looking at the artwork in magic and using mm. those as examples of scenery and creatures and different things on my my AD&D world. Yeah. So this is what you're looking at. No, and it, it makes it interesting for me, at least. Allows me to use these cards because they don't take up much yeah. space. And you can use, like, the different lands, different pictures, because each expansion has its own images. And there's, like, yeah. three or four per expansion. And each one has its own different sets of images for these different lands. And there's five lands. So why not use that as, yeah, okay, this uh, is the terrain you're going through. <laughs> that's, that's probably one of the things that people don't, uh, don't give magic enough credit for is the way that it used its artwork and its narrative to really change the way that we talk and think about what fantasy is. Because mm -hmm. for a really long time, it was, it was dominated almost exclusively by Tolkien-esque sort of high fantasy Germanic lore. And while there's yeah. lots and lots of that in early magic, they did very, also very early on, start expanding what kinds of, of, of concepts and ideas you can use and still have it be fantasy. So that you've got this sort of alien invasion concept with the, the Phyrexians. You've got this almost like uh, Asmavian science fiction concept with, with Karn, the, the sentient golem. He becomes a planeswalker, implying that he has a soul. Uh, and then, uh, you know, ask, begs the question, where did it come from? It, it plays with very intense ethical and, mo and moral questions when it comes to, uh, for example, Tarkir and the way that the, the various civilizations rule. Can you really judge other people for their, their civilization's values? But can you, can you mm -hmm. ignore murder? Like, so there's all those different kinds of things and they also uh, they had a trans character in one of the most recent uh, sets it was uh, fate reforged within the the tarkir uh, block and that character was was not just depicted as being a, a a powerful warrior character was not just a leader of their civilization they were also a good card that had a good story written about them on the the blog magic has been doing a phenomenal job of pushing the envelope of what is acceptable in mainstream fantasy while still being considered fantasy, you know, without going beyond, while still being recognizable as, as fantasy. Yeah, and, and have your classic elves, and there's all different kinds of elves. Yeah, exactly. And there's dragons and worms and slivers and apes and <laughs> minotaurs, herloon minotaurs, I love those. There's so many great combinations of all these different kinds of mythology. I even love the way they get Far East and African and Middle Eastern mythology involved. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. They they run the gambit literally, and yeah. like I was talking about the thrall deck, you've got the these like almost nightmarish little minion creatures mm, that, yeah. that that crawl out of these breeding pits. They're called thralls, and they've got different goblins and orcs and all kinds of stuff. And it's not your typical Tolkien orcs and goblins. These are right. Oh my god! <laughs> and then I and, also love the the setting Lanaway and Shadowmoor, where they showed Frogkin and Flamekin mm -hmm. and elves that had horns. Uh, it was, it was yes. very cool. Very cool. Yes. 
And so they've expanded on fantasy mythology in general quite mm -hmm. a lot. And you look at the artwork, and there's some gorgeous artwork on some of these cards, on a lot of these cards. Yeah, they, they really set um, the bar. Uh, yeah, and, and, I, and, and I hope that, that my, my card game, Time War Supreme Command, I tried to get tried to get artists that could really meet that challenge because it's mm -hmm. it's a, it's quite a high bar that they've set. They've got phenomenal artists working on their game. And so yeah. I you know, I, I wasn't going to be able to go out and, and find those same artists. I wasn't going to be able to go out and find, you know, people who were already really established in uh, the art scene uh, because, you know, the, the price would be fairly high. And, and also the other thing was that these are not the people who are established in the art scene aren't people who need a leg up. My goal was to set out and find people who were exceptionally talented but didn't have exceptional exposure. Mm -hmm. And it took a while, but I found a team of really phenomenal artists. They just do amazing work. And you can read about them uh, in the, the rule book on our, on our website. They're, they're phenomenal. They're from all over the world. Almost all of them are under the age of 30. Only about half of them are male. Uh, only one of them is from the United States. Wow. So, Got some phenomenal. We've got an uh, Indonesian artist, Surya Prasetya. It did a phenomenal job on so many of the cards. A British artist, she goes by the pen name May Greth. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. I've never actually had an opportunity to talk to her uh, on the phone. But she yeah, does... Mythic War. She oh, did the sure. cards from Mythic War. That is really cool. It's so it's phenomenal. It's going to be a phenomenal poster and playmat as well. <laughs> so... Oh wow! And that a lot of the. Very... A lot of the artwork is also going to be on our upcoming uh, product line of gaming accessories that are also compatible with Magic. The, all the, so it's really like sleeves and stuff and, and, and play mats that you can use for your Magic set as well as for Time War Supreme Command. So that you can actually bring some of your Magic creatures into and items into Time Wars. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, so you can, uh, we've got sleeves, we're going to have uh, play mats, uh, dice bags, and score pads. <laughs> very cool. Very, <laughs> very cool. Uh, and infinitely expandable, obviously. Yes. Yeah, the... Um, so Time War Supreme Command, we're, we've already got uh, Corset Humanity, and we're working on another Corset, Vampire Kind, as well as two deluxe expansions to go with that. On top of that, we've also got a series of... of a fiction series and a novel, and uh, more novels upcoming, all of which show different... Set subsettings of the Time Wars universe. Mm. So, for example, in, we've got Legends of the Order, which is mm -hmm. a an ongoing uh, flash fiction blog. You can find it on our website, timewarsuniverse.com. And mm -hmm. in Legends of the Order, you follow a group of vampire hunters who have contact with time travelers from the deep future and are trying to prevent uh, vampires from uh, taking over the Confederacy and winning the, the Civil War. Um, oh, wow. Yeah, because obviously the, the Confederacy is easier for them to infiltrate. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, so you, you've got people like Harriet Tubman using uh, items like a sword that can cut through time and space, teaming up with our heroes from the deep future to take on some very sinister vampires who have some pretty cool tech of their own. And, uh, and one of the things we're developing, uh, it's just slightly down the line, but we're going to be working on an expansion based exclusively on that fiction series. Oh, wow. So we're going to have Abe, Abe Lincoln sw uh, slashing with his axe. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly what I'm seeing, this Abraham Lincoln vampire under that. 
we're, we're working up we're working up to Abe Lincoln. Uh, but uh, but uh, right now, John Brown and and Harriet Tubman are still meeting up, and uh, uh, Abraham Lincoln has yet to be brought in the fold. He's he's just he in the story so far. He's just some young upstart in Illinois who's still figuring things out. <laughs> <laughs> We got very, the, very cool. the real vampire hunters are still still getting to work. That's cool. That is very very cool. Is this just the overview that you've given? This sounds like it it'll end up. It could very easily end up as popular as uh, like Magic and some of the other card games, popular collectible card games that people are are playing uh, now. And well, I really hope it does because this is—it's a great concept. It really is. Thank you. You know, I, uh, personally, I am—I have a slightly larger game in my crosshairs. I'm—I'm I'm hoping that this will be something to rival Star Wars, Star Trek, or Marvel. Because, like I've said, this oh, is wow. more than—is more than just one card game, right? Magic. Magic has come out with some books. You know, they did a comic or two. They've got some good blogs. But Time Wars is much more than any one game. It's a great role-playing game. It's a great card game. It's a phenomenal book series. It's a phenomenal fiction series. And it's going to be a great video game. And someday it's going to be a great movie and a great TV show. <laughs> I look gotta, forward to seeing that. Just got to find the right people. Yeah. Yeah. And, that, and that's usually it takes. One of the things that, that I... Uh, have come across is that networks often don't understand something like this. So maybe doing it independent would be, would better suit this at the very least proof of concept. Look at all of the different independent films that are like, Oh my God, jaw dropping. That's actually, that's what we're working on right now. We've got a combination video game and television pilot that we're working on. It's going to be based oh, on the same characters as the novella, which hmm. is it's a young woman uh, who was only known uh, by Agent Moo. It's the code name she's given by the secret society she's accidentally inducted into. And <laughs> so someone who has no qualifications just accidentally becomes, through happenstance, the, the only thing standing between Seattle and vampiric annihilation. And so uh, focusing on her relationship with her predecessor, who is a human mind trapped inside a pager-like device. So he, <laughs> so him, Johnny, his, the, her predecessor, he knows everything about the vampires, but he can't do anything. And she can do anything she wants, but she doesn't know anything. So it's kind of a, a match made in hell. <laughs> <laughs> I, love the, I love the flavor text on hers. I know that it looks like a red toothbrush, but it's definitely a radiation cannon i'm like oh <laughs> and it's her, it's a picture of her and she's holding a red toothbrush <laughs> that is hysterical i love it novel itself is uh, very much dark humor and dark fantasy with quite a bit of action and suspense and right so we're working <laughs> so i'm working on a sequel that's actually going to be an interactive movie where oh, you take yeah. on the role of johnny the, the little guy inside the device. So all you can do is choose what he says, and that'll oh. change your relationships with the other characters and drive their decision-making, and so you can give them different... You can make choices and decisions, and it'll all be from his perspective. Right now, we're in the process of casting and, and fleshing out the script, and eventually it'll be an interactive movie that you can you can actually choose your own ending. It'll be a lot like the, the Choose Your Own Adventure books, but with, uh, with hopefully some pretty wit witty rapporté on... Uh, 
on the audio. Oh, and then we can cool. use that as sort of a proof of concept of what it would look like uh, as uh, a film or a, or a movie or a, a television show. Because I think the characters are, are they just, they, they came to me whole. I didn't even really write them. They just sort of appeared on my doorstep one day and said, hey, you know, we're, this is what we did already. Here, write it down. Mm-hmm. It was, yeah. It's it's pretty great when when you don't have to do any work on characters. They just sort of pop right into existence. Right. <laughs> uh, I've done that playing r- tabletop RPGs. It's like, mm-hmm. yeah, here's this character. It's like, where did you get that? I don't know. It just sort of <laughs> happened. <laughs> Been there, done that. <laughs> so yeah, it's... so that's that's what we're in the process of doing right now is we're trying to figure out how to, to bring more of these characters to life on screen. Very, very cool. Yeah, I love the <laughs> the picture for Johnny. You've got the screen. It says, oh, come on. <laughs> <laughs> the, just the, the, I love the flavor text on some of these, like Nikola Tesla. But I don't want to be a vampire hunter. I just, just want to change the world. <laughs> <laughs> this is great. I love it. And, and the, pictures, the pictures are wonderful. You got some really cool artists on here. They did a phenomenal job, and, and I really yeah. hope that they – one of the big reasons for doing this Kickstarter is I'm trying to raise the money so I can pay them to do it again. Uh, you know, this is, this is my – this is how I make a living. This is how they make a living, and you know, I just really hope people enjoy it enough that we can keep doing it. Yeah, because card games and stuff are such – particularly collector games like this are, are such a big thing, and the fact that you've got such an expanded – universe around it with the books and and everything else it gives more insight into a lot of these characters and looking forward to a film and possible tv series is not only is that ambition it's good ambition and it's creativity and i love it (laughs) thanks and it's this whole thing i i want to see this go as far as it can go i really do because this is this is great. I think the time is really right. I think it's it's really yeah. You know, it's as much me having done it as it is the world being ready for it. It has to be equal yeah. parts. I, I always want to say that I'm standing on the shoulders of giants. It's not like I've pulled this thing out of thin air in and mm-hmm. no one helped me at all. It's it's a culmination of everything I learned watching Star Trek, watching all the Marvel cartoons, all the DC cartoons, Power Rangers, all the Star Wars books I read, video games, all these things. They all I was studying every single mm-hmm. one of those things. I was learning. I was figuring out what they were doing that I liked. I wanted to try and make something that had not only that level of entertainment. I mean, it definitely, I, there's no point to any of it if it's not fun. But right. I also wanted to make it as substantive as the, the best stuff that I really enjoyed. Because I, yeah. I, I think that's a, a really good example of that would be there's two Batman animated TV shows. There's the one that they did in the 90s and then there's the one that they did in the 2000s. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, they're generally distinguished by calling them uh, Batman the Animated Series and The Batman, which is the second one. The first one, the original one, the one that's really well-remembered and really cherished, mm-hmm. has really strong ethical points to make. And not obvious ones. Not, you know, not little trite, little, you know, don't, don't lie, don't steal, nothing that simple. Really mm-hmm. complex things to say about the way that we interact with the people around us and the society the, the way that we interact with the structures of society. Then you go look at the next one, The Batman. And as much work and love as they put into the performances, the design, the direction, the timing, all of these things are wonderfully done. It just doesn't have that heart. 
And it mm-hmm. shows now, 10 years after that one and, and 20, 30 years after the original, it shows which one, you know, regardless of technological achievement or fluidity of animation or frames per second, which one is truly the, the one that will stand the test of time is the one that has something to say. And so I think with this, I'm learning, I've, I've learned so many lessons, not just about the actual craft, but mm-hmm. also about the why. Why do people make this? Why do people enjoy this? Why do people want to, to, in, to engage in science fiction at all? Why not just mm-hmm. sit at home and stare at a wall? What, why is that a better alternative? And so the, the, a large part of that has to do with challenging the intellect. Yeah. People who really love science fiction aren't closed-minded people because no. they, they, they seek out entertainment that asks them to think differently than they already did. Mm-hmm. So I think that, that we're at a point in time now where we've got three generations of people mm-hmm. all looking at the same group of events and wondering, how do I make sense of all of this? How do, mm-hmm. what, what stories do I use to understand what's happening? And many people are turning to religion. Many people are turning to science fiction. Many people are turning to things as frivolous as reality television. Mm-hmm. People are turning to everyone, everything that they can think of to try and make sense of this all. And I don't think I have a lot of insight. I think I've done a good job collecting the insights of geniuses that have come before me. Everyone from Stan Lee to Jerry Siegel, even Haim Saban, people who mm-hmm. really had the Gene Roddenberry, George Lucas, you know, the, the, the giants, DC Fontana, the people who've really took the time to figure out what it meant to make media that meant something. You know, they were the pioneers, and I feel like I just can't be the one to slack off. I can't be the one to, I can't oversee, I can't be a, a part of a generation that doesn't pick up the torch. So right. I really wanted to make something substantive, something that really meant something. Yeah, it's like, why did people get so heavily, you know, why is Transformers such a big thing? Well, look at the stories, look at the characters, look at what's going on. Absolutely. In that, look at, like you said, Star Wars and Star Trek, Babylon 5, Stargate. Why are people still so intensely enthralled with Firefly and more and more fans? And it's been off the air for more than 10 years, and still more and more people are falling in love with it. Why? Well, look at it. Exactly. And I think another really good example is look at all the ones that didn't mean anything. Look at all, you know, why aren't people talking about... Buck Rogers. Mm-hmm. No one's talking. That show, it meant, meant nothing. It was mm-hmm. it was at best a Flash Gordon ripoff. You know why why aren't people talking about? Hey, we I can't even think of. But you, how many science fiction shows, comic books come and go every year that no yeah. one remembers? Uh, oh, what was? Oh, a great example. That terrible Steven Spielberg TV show where people from the future go back in time and set up a colony in prehistory, and they're like living amongst dinosaurs. Uh, and it just watched that series. I know that I remember oh, there was I, like, I would, I tried really hard to like that show. I really wanted to like that show. And there was about, there was an episode where they all find a cave that causes them to just sort of forget things. And I realized I was watching an episode of land of the lost all of a sudden. Uh, yeah. <laughs> like that's really yeah. what that show became really quickly. And I just couldn't, I was just like, you're not better than Land of the Lost. Why am I even bothering? And and again, that show really didn't mean anything. It it tried to sort of start to kind of say something by showing a future that was really bleak, like so bleak that people had to abandon it. 
but then yeah. it never really did anything else with that. So yeah, so and I uh, another thing I wanted to do was I wanted to to break ground on format because a lot of great science fiction breaks formats. You know, the best example would probably be Star Trek primetime science fiction for adults. Yes. Boom. Uh, Star Wars. It, that one was huge because it was science fiction that wasn't about shiny, uh, you know, beautiful, outlandish things. It was about, you know, even the the spaceships were rusty and and leaky and and it, it lent a humanity to everything. Uh, even the That's aliens felt Galactica. more human. Exactly. That was, I, because their plight was so real. Their problem was something that was mm-hmm. – it, it was uh, – it was an exodus. Every great, every you know, civilization in all of history has had an exodus at some point. So it yeah. really tapped into something really fundamental. Yeah. Uh, so I wanted to break format, and so one of the things I did is the is the card game is not actually a collectible card game per se, and it's not even really a living card game like Fantasy Flight's you know brand of living card games. It's you can you can take uh, the core set and play it with just two people by itself. And that's a full yeah. game. Or yeah. you can take the, the other cards we're developing and you can make your own decks. Or you can take the other sets we're developing and mix them in in a special way that we've set out in the rules so that you end up with a two-player set that you don't even... So, so the idea, idea is that I wanted to be able to have people dial in their experience, to, be, to choose how much of it they wanted to do. And, and that's... You know, that's been a real key to the success of so much science fiction, a, a good example being comic books. A comic book is real easy to carry, which made it hugely popular amongst uh, truck drivers and pilots and people who just, who just had to travel. Kids going to school, obviously, was a huge market, but people overlooked the fact that, that it became a huge, uh, huge thing because of the innovation of portability. That you could, mm-hmm. by using pictures, you could convey as much more information in a much shorter period of time, uh, or a much yeah. smaller part of the page, anyway. Television was a huge innovation because you, all of a sudden you could tell much more complex and nuanced stories in your own home without having to go out. So, mm-hmm. I wanted. To, I'm not going to invent television, obviously, but I could at least try and break some ground in uh, in the gaming industry by by trying to create a product that doesn't punish you if you don't want to invest your whole paycheck into it. <laughs> right. And it's <clears throat> with it being a specific got this set and then you've got this set and you get the whole set in one go <laughs> rather than getting little like 10 card packs or eight card packs or however many because different, different co- uh, collector cards have different numbers in their little blister packs that they, <clears throat> you get the whole set, like you get a deck of cards. Mm-hmm. Well, you've got this set. You've got the humanity set. And then, like you were saying, the vampire set, that's mm-hmm. one whole set. And then your expansion sets, it's all of the cards for that expansion. And, and then we've also got a, a fun little nicer. thing. Yeah, we got a fun little thing. It's called an infinity pack. And the idea mm-hmm. here was that we actually had so much beautiful artwork that I had – it was pretty agonizing choice which pieces of artwork to put on the card because it's got a character, Andy Badan, and I've got three beautiful illustrations of Andy. What, well, which one do I put on the card? So I, I, sort of, mm-hmm. I sort of made myself and hopefully everyone else happy by having this idea for an infinity pack. 
So when you're setting up the card game, you use the all the cards that come in the box, and then using this process uh, that I lay out in the rule book, you, you set some aside so that there's some that you're not playing with, so it's a little random each time. Uh, you're not exactly sure which cards are in the mix. So the infinity packs are random card selections that are mostly alternate art and full art versions of the cards that already come in the core set. And then some of them are uh, different characters that just, they're not more better, they're not more or, or less powerful than the other ones, but there's a Hercules in there. And so in the Infinity Packs, my goal was to create a sort of a randomized expansion uh-huh. that wasn't collectible, that didn't force you to, to go through ream after ream after ream looking for that perfect card. So right. because they're almost all uh, alternate art versions of the cards that already come in there, all you do is you just mix them in with your main collection and mm-hmm. you shuffle them all together. And now you've got an increasingly unique collection. Your collection is different than everybody else's. It's still the same game. It still has the same balance. But perhaps you have one or more Andes than anyone else. And therefore, you have a slightly higher chance of getting that particular card when you play. Yeah. And different artwork. Yes, and that's one of my favorite parts. Yeah, and that's one of the things that I loved about uh, Magic is that, like with the lands, the five lands, the the plains, the islands, the mountains, the forests, the swamps, you get four different images, four different pieces of art for your lands. And each expansion has its own set of images for those lands one uh, one of the ones i really liked was uh the innistrad set that they did fairly recently mm-hmm. and it was mm-hmm. very much horror themed and the f- the final set of the block uh was about the angel of the the land being uh coming back to the plane and, and you know restoring everything and i really loved they did uh two versions of an oil painting so for example the, you know like you said they did three different land uh, illustrations for islands mm-hmm. and so uh, one of them was a dark harbor with uh, a weather-worn little boat tied up to a, a dock and it was mm-hmm. obviously in the middle of the night and then for the last set they reprinted that almost that same picture but it was the only difference is that it was bright it was bright morning and there was a lamp lit and the dinghy mm-hmm. wasn't as beat up and it was it's just so stunning and i realized that that's one of the things one of the amazing things you can do with digital artistry mhm cuz it was the exact same picture but they had just obviously put on more digital layers or or something like that to to create this really vibrant it's just it's a really amazing thing that they're able to do uh, it's almost it's storytelling through just card artwork I remember that just blew me away when I realized that. Yeah, and that's one of the things that I loved about Magic. And and looking at at this, I can see how you two, three, four different cards for the same, like, character. For example, Agent Moo. You could have, like, three different cards that each one has a different artwork for her. Yeah, and we actually, and, she has some really beautiful artwork of her. Or Noah Brown Eyes. Different artworks for Nikola Tessa, Harriet Tubman. Different artwork for the Mythic War card or Major Discovery. You know, and just, 
I can see how, you know, looking on, at Magic and what they did and how they made, kept it interesting visually by doing different designs, different pictures for, for their cards. So, some of the cards that came, came out in the original uh, first three sets, they've got new artwork for. Mm-hmm. And it's the same card. But it's brand new, completely different artwork, uh, like the Lano or Elves, for example. Uh, you know that that reminds um, me of my favorite Magic card. It, it it was a huge inspiration to me. It's it still is a huge inspiration to me every time I sit down to try and make any kind of game. Is one uh-huh. Magic card, and it's called Taunting Elf. And oh. I love Taunting Elf. It's a one-one for one. All creatures that must block, or that all creatures that can block it must. And the artwork just is so perfect it's just a little elf with i think it's a basket of food and it's got this huge stampeding horde of various monsters chasing it (laughs) and oh my gosh i remember that was the card that i looked at it i looked at the rules i understood the card as a whole and what it represented within the game and that was the moment i became a gamer like really became a gamer when i really got that and so that's that's the kind of thing I wanted to do. So for uh, you know, uh, for example, uh, one of the things is Harriet Tubman in, in Time Wars has a sword that can cut through through time and space. Uh, she's got uh, an ability that uh, allows her to go after a uh, to, to to take out a time traveler. She's the only civilian mm-hmm. that can take out a time traveler, and and there's a reason for that because she's the only civilian with a sword that can cut through time and space. Um. The the present is not made for us. My future is mine to fight for, is the 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 quote on that one. That's very very cool. For the only other, yeah, the only other card that can take out a time traveler that goes in the timeline, uh, specifically a time traveler, is um, a giant celebration. And that that one has absolutely gorgeous artwork. I actually took that art and I put it up on. Uh, I made it a poster on my wall. My mom got that done for me for Christmas. Uh, I love it. It's uh, it depicts well the celebration of the end of the lunar wars in Nairobi, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. so I I worked with the artist to make sure that it was uh, true to the way that Nairobi is currently laid out. But then we built a, a futuristic city up on top of it um, mm. to represent the the future of Nairobi. And then there's a collection of people playing music and dancing in, in the front, and. Uh, originally I really just needed a card that was an event that took out time, time travelers. And that was really just all I needed, you know, in the, the design process. And I had to figure out what that card would represent. And mm-hmm. I wanted to have as many positive kinds of events to display, mm-hmm. but I didn't want to make them. Uh, so, but, you know, obviously this event has to, you know, lead to the destruction of someone, but I want to portray it as positive. So how do I do that? And I came up with a, something that I was pretty happy with, which was, was uh, that public gatherings, big public gatherings, are a dangerous place for time travelers. Yeah, no place was more dangerous for a time traveler, traveler than a public gathering. So I, I sort of I wanted to just have that idea, and so uh, I actually have the, the main characters of the story uh, are in that, that picture. You kind of have to look for them. Uh, you have to know their faces first because they're not in their uniforms. And, you know, I just want to be able to tell that tiny little story that they're taking a risk by even being there. It's a very dangerous place for them, but they're going to be there anyway. 
Mm-hmm. We also got coup d'etat. Uh, Caesar must be stopped, and you, Brutus. You as well? <laughs> that one I had Et a lot of fun. Brute. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I had a lot of fun with that one, uh, designing that one, because it's obviously it's a scene that's been done many times in, mm-hmm. in classical artwork. You know, everyone loves to draw Caesar being assassinated. Uh, but mm-hmm. it's, it was never depicted by people of the era. It was only ever mm-hmm. depicted by uh, people who lived much further west than Italy and mm-hmm. uh, al- almost exclusively people who lived hundreds of years after the fact. So they, they habitually imbued those paintings with so many concepts from their own time and their own civilization. So you, what, you yeah. see is, you, what you see is a Roman Senate composed almost exclusively of elderly white men, when mm-hmm. in reality that was not the case. Yeah. In, re- in reality, the Roman Senate included many women and people who are not – we wouldn't currently consider white. I mean there wasn't a concept of whiteness at the time. You know, There are people who come from, uh, from what we now consider to be Persia, Turkey, Egypt, Syria, and mm-hmm. yet those unique individuals who we know for a fact were present at that, at that event in the artwork painted in France and England and Netherlands depicts white People, very pale, you know, ruddy in the cheeks, that, that sort of classical Western European male pattern baldness. Uh, yeah. And so, you know, I wanted to try and, and create artwork that fit within the canon of, mm-hmm. of how that was depicted, but was subversive in its depiction. And so I worked with the artist Maygreth for that illustration, and she did an absolutely phenomenal job. It just, it looks, it looks so much like the other art- artwork in the mm-hmm. posing, the composition. I mean, honestly, if it weren't for the, the fact that there are no brush strokes because it's a digital painting, if, if, if she were to have done this in, in acrylic or oil, I, I doubt that a layperson would be able to tell it apart from mm-hmm. artwork of, of the Renaissance. But it's, it's, it's phenomenal artwork, and she did such a beautiful job depicting a huge range of people who would have actually have been present. Yeah, there's a a very dark-skinned woman there in the foreground on the uh, right-hand side. And that's more true to life than than most of those paintings. Uh, Another example of that is uh, Artemisia of Halicarnassus. So she's a a real character from from actual history. She's uh, the Persian naval commander during the Greco-Persian Wars. She's Mm -hmm. the world's first female naval admiral. Mm Mm-hmm. And literally nothing is known about her early life because the Greeks were more preoccupied with recording history than the Persians at the time. Mm-hmm. So there, almost everything we know about her comes from the Greek histories. And as a result, the depiction isn't always very fair and, right. and it's pretty incongruent. I mean, she's, she's usually depicted as being sort of laissez-faire, uh, even in uh, movies like um, The 300 Spartans, the 1960s classic. Uh, mm-hmm. she's depicted as being sort of a kitty with claws, but still a kitty. And that's really incongruent with someone who would be entrusted with the largest naval force ever assembled up to that point. So I wanted to, and the other thing is that she's almost always depicted as white, which makes no sense. While she was linguistically Greek, she was ethnically African and nationally Persian. I wanted to create a, a vision of her that, not necessarily being historically accurate, but was more in line with the history of lionizing our ancestors. The right. English English don't spend any time worrying about whether or not the Holy Grail was real or Excalibur was actually magical. 
King Arthur wielded Excalibur and it was magical. And if you don't, even if you don't believe that that's true, that's still the first story you're taught. And yeah. so I wanted to do something similar with Artemisia of Halicarnassus. She truly was a character who was on the right side of history. In the long term, you realize that she was the regent of her realm. She, was, she led Caria out of, from the town of Halicarnassus, and it was a region of what we now call uh, Turkey. She was trying to resist the Greek terrorists that were attacking Persia to try and get special preferred treatment for Greek merchants that were trading on that side of the ocean. So, so what happens is that the, the Spartans and the Athenians are smuggling weapons to terrorists inside the Persian Empire. And she's trying to go after the source because it's happening in her hometown. Mm -hmm. So her okay. hometown is being overrun by foreign terrorists. And so she mm -hmm. gathers a navy to go and try and stop them at the source. Uh, that, yeah. if, it, if it weren't for the fact that the Persians had lost that war ultimately and that at Athens much, much later became what we would now consider the the heart of, of Western civilization. If it hadn't been for those two things, we wouldn't talk about Artemisia as anything other than a hero. If I have a card that I, that's going to be a cool card and I've got no one to go on it, I'm going to think long and hard about who deserves to go on it. And yeah. when I was thinking about awesome people, kick-ass people in history that deserve to be in cool cards, on cool cards that depict them as badasses, First three names that came to mind, Artemisia of Halicarnassus, Nikola Tesla, and Harriet Tubman. Mm -hmm. Her friends call her Artemis, her followers call her Captain, but her enemies call her the end of days. Yes. I like that. She has <laughs> like an amazing that. backstory. I don't want to spoil it, but hopefully we'll be seeing it soon in a, a fiction format. I will say that she has a very, very close relationship with uh, Hercules and Rostam, the mythological heroes. Oh, cool. Very cool. This is, there. there's a lot here in both mythology and in history, actual history. And, you know, you've obviously done your homework. With, I, I was always a, a pretty good student of history. I, I very, <laughs> very much self-taught. I would, I'd always read ahead in the book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I'm kind of the same way um, with, uh, science and and all of that. I got hooked on dinosaurs when I was four, which turned into paleontology, <laughs> which turned into zoology and, and the various attached uh, aspects thereof. I got hooked on astronomy when I was eight. Um, <laughs> you know, so And it just snowballed from there. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And so, yeah, I, I well understand that the, the whole something strikes you and it's like oh go digging further yeah i i get that totally you know and, and, <laughs> and i feel like yeah you've done that here and i, I can very clearly you. see that and it's I, it's awesome i love it thank you i i really want to try and inspire that in others too because mm -hmm. uh i remember uh at one point someone someone said i you know i don't like history and i was like how can you not like history and i was like do you like stories and they're like, yeah, I like stories. I'm like, well, then you like history. And they're like, no, no, I don't like history. And I realized that they had only been hearing history from bad storytellers. And, mm -hmm. and I was thinking about that more and I thought about it more and I thought about it more and I thought about science. And I thought about the fact that 
when I am sitting around thinking about scientific subjects, when I'm you know reading an, an article or I'm trying to apply some sort of abstract concept into my daily life, I the things I draw upon, the memories I, I pull out of that that deep morass in the back of my mind, they don't come from science class. They come from Bill Nye the Science Guy. Carl Sagan. Exactly. Neil deGrasse yeah. Tyson. You've, uh, yes. There's, oh, what's his name? Um, uh, the guy who did uh, Connections. Um, mm-hmm. I, I love that show. The mm-hmm. there's But the, the idea is that, you know, there's – a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down. It's really that simple. You, you, yeah. if, as long as something's mildly fun and interesting, everyone's going to love it. And the fact that it's, it's almost like people have to work really hard to make science and history boring. Yeah. And when you've got, especially with things like science and history, if you if it comes down to memorizing names and dates mm. and points of facts, you, you're going to lose your right. audience completely. Right. But you bring in, uh, for example, the series Through the Wormhole. Morgan Freeman narrates it. Right, exactly. And you bring somebody you know, in who you, – you, you write it in such a way – you present it in such a way that it becomes interesting and fun and it, it, it pulls you into it. It's like, ooh, that's the difference between um, – oh, God. The perfect example uh, from a movie, Mrs. Doubtfire. Hmm. He goes into the studio and here's this guy who's like snore-worthy in the extreme talking about dinosaurs and it's like oh even the guy behind the camera was falling asleep okay and and trying desperately to stay awake and one night late night he he comes in there and he's sitting there with these dinosaurs and he starts going in and and the guy's watching it he's like that's funny stuff and you (laughs) learn something it's like don't dumb it down for them just talk to them right make it fun and entertaining and he really really liked it and mrs doubtfire became the host of this new show by the end of the movie and this that's a perfect example of that where you go from oh my god everybody's falling asleep and slowly (laughs) dying of boredom to holy crap this is funny as hell (laughs) (laughs) and just night and day and this is where a lot of a lot of mistakes are made in schools. Right. Yeah. In, especially with history. People hate Absolutely. history because it's memorizing dates and names. And, right. Uh, and it's the order of events. It's like, no, 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 no. Give them the Greek tragedies. Give them Shakespeare and er, the, the actual stories that right. and- came out of this. And let them read the stories and be entertained and you'll learn something going back to time war cards and the stories within what the narrative of the time wars it falls into a lot of that who were these people in history i mean you look at people like nikola tesla he's taken on mythic proportions as it is and it late 1800s 
Right. And when he lived and his, it's already, you know, 100 years, 120 years later, his take his characterization has taken on almost mythic proportions now. And I think, yeah, I, I think that there's, you know, a, a great example of someone whose character is more readily accessed, more available when you lionize mm -hmm. them would be mm -hmm. uh, King Arthur. I would I would love yes. to do for so many other true historical figures what has been done for King Arthur. Uh, you know, Arthur Pendragon was undoubtedly a real human being, but he lived at a time when the English did not have widespread use of horses. He probably didn't have use of refined metal except from what he could had left over from the Romans. Uh, masonry was not at a point where he was building castles. So his life is very different than the way that the French people who lived hundreds of years later imagined because right? yeah. it, was, it was actually French poets who wrote these giant romances about uh, Arthur Pendragon. And so, you know, they were drawing upon something that was real. They added whatever they wanted to. When, when you look at what he actually accomplished, it's tremendous. Mm -hmm. And it almost deserves the grandiosity that the, that the French poets lent him. It's, yeah. it's, uh, it's a story that's actually improved with the embellishment of fantasy. And uh, that's one of the things I really love about science fiction and fantasy is that by by it's almost like it's almost like sculpture with mm -hmm. sculpture. You chip away the lie to reveal the truth. And yeah. with science fiction and fantasy, you can chip away all those parts of reality, all those those constraints of, you know, that's how an arrow flies and and that's how a ball falls and, and that's how the sun rises. You can just pull all of those things away and just get at just the human part. Mm -hmm. just who that person is by putting them up against really extraordinary things. We know for a fact that Arthur was brave. We know that because he was brave enough to try and unite a nation. But when you show that on screen of a guy walking from mud hut to mud hut, telling people to gather their sticks together, it doesn't look quite as good as a guy in shining armor taking on a dragon. And right. To be honest, that guy, that guy did something as cool as taking on a dragon he deserves mm -hmm. to be shown in at least one movie taking on a dragon. And so yeah. that's what I kind of wanted to do with characters like Nikola Tesla. Nikola Tesla was a guy who came to the United States with nothing but hopes and aspirations, not even for himself, but for improving all of humanity. And in yeah. the face of failure after failure, betrayal after betrayal, he, was, he never relented in his optimism. He never relented in his belief that he could have an impact and – if it takes surrounding him by vampires to make that more obvious, that's what I'm going to do. Yeah, he's he's one of those one of those figures in history that he so much, so much of his work is so grossly unrealized in its Absolutely. potential. It's one of the reasons I love steampunk because it builds on steam power, clockworks. And his technology that he was developing, his ideas, his concepts. How to manipulate electricity. Yep. Instilling that into technology and going that direction in steampunk. That's one of the reasons I love it. It's the road not traveled. <laughs> that I think should I, have been. I'm trying to, trying to coin a phrase to describe Time Wars. It's time punk. <laughs> love it. I love it. <laughs> That is that that works. Time punk. <laughs> uh, that works. 
that I very a, much works. I had a conversation with uh, someone at NorwestCon about the the punk part of you know mm-hmm. steampunk and time punk and all of that. Is it's very much it's the punk part of steampunk isn't just it's not just an aesthetic. It's really mm-hmm. a, about challenging the the preconceived paradigms. And so that's what makes steampunk more than just steam truck, steam stuff. It's not just steam stuff. It's steampunk because it shows that this is not the only reality we have to we are we are allowed to accept. We are we right. are allowed it's to like imagine cyberpunk. exactly exactly the same thing. Uh, it challenges our look at look at Matrix. Look at Johnny Mnemonic. Look at Max. Really Hedges, challenging the five. limits of self. Yes. Uh, what is reality? Uh, you know, yes. What is the the line the the Kantian veil of perception? Um, yes. And so with with time punk, right? I, you know, the punk element in here is challenging our concept of how history works. We're so yes. accustomed to believing that history is propelled by big, powerful figures that move, you know, faceless masses of people like chess pieces. And no. that's uh, that's one of the reasons that so many people are willing to believe really convoluted um, conspiracy theories regarding things that occur in the hands of really ordinary people. You know, oh yeah. I mean, the the you know a big example is 9/11. A lot of people would like to believe that 9/11 was done by someone more powerful than just a couple of hijackers. Because if it was done by just a couple of hijackers, that means that anyone can change history. And if anyone can change history, then people who aren't doing anything are released, are, are, are simply not using a huge power that they have. And that's not something they want to admit. It'd be so much easier if we were all powerless, just particles in the wind. And so I wanted to challenge that view of history, that, that history is moved by these tremendous forces. And instead... The, the punk part of time punk in Time Wars is showing that you can, you can change the entire outcome of history with a single decision. And anybody can make that decision. All they have to do is do it. Yeah. It's, it's a call to action that, you, yeah. that anyone can change history just through action, even something that looks small from, for now. Even if it looks like it's not having an effect, we can use science fiction to look out hundreds thousands tens of thousands of years and see what effects they might have yeah (laughs) funnily enough going back to doctor who an ordinary person's most important thing in the universe never met an unimportant person you know it's just an ordinary everyday human being can be the can very easily become the most important person in history and it doesn't all it takes is that person's willingness to stand up and say, "Okay, let's get, let's do this." <laughs> even you know, even uh, even Julius Caesar, right? Julius Caesar was a young kid hanging out on a beach when he got picked up by a bunch of pirates. His parents thought they'd never see him again. The next time that anyone heard from him, he was running that pirate ship, and he was twelve. <laughs> and, yeah, and it was. He all he did was I mean he wasn't he wasn't rich his like there were no there were no famous Caesars before him none like he was an, no. he was a no one his family were nobodies all he had to do was be a bigger badass than the people around him yep and that's and all that's all it and, and you know it's another one Harriet Tubman right all mm-hmm. she literally had the least power 
of anyone, institutional power. She had the least institutional power of anyone in the United States when she was, when she was born. And she went ahead and became the Moses of her people. She became a general. She became the leader of a, a war that began before the Civil War and ended after the Civil War. Uh, you know, a shadow war to try and free un- innumerable numbers of people. Is and yeah. so it's that's that's the kind of thing that I want to. You know, it's it it really strikes at the nature of history that we talk more about Abraham Lincoln than Harriet Tubman. Because when you yeah. talk about people whose actual actions brought about the end of slavery, not the institutional end of slavery, but literally the end of an individual's slavery. Yeah. Harriet Tubman is a footnote in our history books, and that is the height of, in, of unfairness. There's, there, I can't, oh, I can't yeah. think of anything more unfair. And she because she, she did so much. Not only she did, did she so much. Not only did she she went and she freed people, right? That's the thing that we really know about. That's the thing we really yeah. understand in our history books. What we don't realize is that she led troops in the Civil War in battles. She was yeah. literally a general of troops. And then she took down vast swaths of Confederate uh, uh plantations. They it, and she was she disarmed mines. She navigated uh, uh, treacherous waters in the middle of the night. She had a vast spy network. And even after the Civil War, she was still working to try and free all these people who were in little corners where the U.S. Army hadn't quite reached. She was mm-hmm. doing advocacy stuff all, even in the, the women's suffrage movement all the way up until the very end of her life. She did so much on-the-ground work and institutional work that just doesn't, does, doesn't go appreciated. All we know about her is as a conductor on the the Underground Railway. And that's almost more of a slight than leaving her out entirely. It yeah. so minimizes her contributions. And yet there's so much more that she did. I mean, look at uh, the the regiment. It was one white officer with all of these black soldiers. The movie Glory, which we saw in high school. Yeah. Uh, when I was in high school, you know, and what they did. Look at Tuskegee Airmen. Mm. You know, Absolutely. and and the the um, wind talkers, the Navajo Navajo code talkers uh, during the war. Oh my God, these people that had given so much, and they're like a footnote in history. And then yeah. finally, somebody does a film about them, and it's, and then suddenly everybody goes, really? <laughs> they didn't tell me that in, in history class. It's like, yeah. And that's the great power <laughs> of, of media. You know, it's I, I, I think of uh, I think of Netflix as, as the modern uh, church. It really is the modern atheistic church. Uh, yeah. It's where everyone everyone goes to find the stories that they use to relate to the world around them and the people around them. Yeah. In for a lot of different people, that's church. You know, they go listen to their favorite stories. Uh, or at least stories that speak to them very deeply and and have that shared experience with the, their community. You know, you don't a lot of people are less and less religious in all over the world, especially in this country. And yeah. and and with this decrease in religiousness, we don't see a decrease in the need for storytelling. And so where that's I think that really the the decrease in religiousness has also 
gone hand in hand with the increase in popularity of science fiction and fantasy media for that very reason, because people are looking for stories they can use to make sense of the ethical landscape around them and understand how to relate to other people. Stories with meaning, stories with with heart, stories that speak to us on a level that we haven't experienced otherwise. And a lot of people look to, to media and religion to tell them not only the story of where they're going, but where they came from. And mm-hmm. with science fiction in particular, fantasy to a lesser degree, but science, science fiction in particular, we have the opportunity to use hypotheticals in conjunction with real science to mm. analyze the forces that brought us from there to here. Yeah. And one of the things that I love about science fiction, technology in science fiction has become real. Yes. Look at Jules Verne all the way back to the diving suit and submarines to Star Trek cell phones and and how about just reading uh, things on a screen (laughs) that's right I I remember Scotty I I was a little kid and I looked up and I saw Scotty and he said that he was he was looking at a TV or I guess it was like a little monitor looked like my computer monitor when I was a kid so you know this big glassy tubey thing uh, and he's looking at it and he's talking about how he's reading his uh, his engineering uh, journals. And yes. at the time, you could like e- even when I was a kid, like I'm pretty young, I'm, I'm you know, I'm in my mid to late 20s. I even when I was a kid, you couldn't read journals on the computer. Like maybe my dad could go out and get like a, a, a floppy disk with some, some some pieces of Britannica on it or something. But it's a. Uh, it's really amazing, just little things like that. And, oh, God, that has so much to do with, again, just the people who are in science fiction themselves being well-read. Because oh, yeah. one of the things that I love about Star Trek, one of the reasons Star Trek got so many things right is because the production designer, Jeffries, was he, – he was actually not super well-known for science fiction before he did that show. Before he did that show, he was really well-known for historical fiction. So he had a habit of doing research to determine, well, what, what kind of kettle would they have used? What kind of shoes would they have been wearing? And so when right. he was asked to do the science fiction show, he, did, he had to do hypotheticals. How would they build this? What would it look like? Mm-hmm. And since mm-hmm. he had uh, an aeronautics background and a, his- and a history background, he was able to answer these questions very effectively. So, for example, one of the things uh, uh, about the communicators is mm-hmm. that they are completely self-contained. Mm-hmm. And, and this is something that I think Next Generation really missed the boat on. Uh, Next Generation does not have the level of, of fidelity to design quality that the original series does. Because if your ship is gone and you don't have any other tools and you're stranded somewhere, if you have an original series communicator, there are buttons and dials for you to change the frequency and maybe find one that works. Not mm-hmm. so with a pin. Right. So with that little pin badge, right, they had the, mm-hmm. the design problem of how do you actually manipulate this without an external interface? It has no interface. What do you do to change the settings? You, you don't. You need an external interface. And once that computer goes down or once the computer is absent, you can't use that device anymore. Mm-hmm. So when, One of the things that they did actually... I think at one point they took one apart 
to reset it, and it was another instance where they actually used, they tapped in. I think data actually tapped in a Morse code message. <laughs> but see, you wouldn't even need to open the casing to do that in the original series one. Yeah. You know, it's, yeah. Stuff like uh, they, stuff like the nacelles are why you know why nacelles. It, it, up until that point, they'd been making everything like a rocket ship, one big tube, and uh-huh. uh, and Jeffries realized, well, if something goes wrong with the explosive part of the ship, you want them to be as far away from everything else as possible. Yeah. So that's where the nacelles even come from. Yeah. And, and... of course, no show has has done the the cylindrical rocket since. No, they've actually started doing different uh, configurations. Look at Battlestar Galactica. Yes, that's another. And, and the the configurations of those ships and how they work, and and look at Babylon Five, and look. And at, they're all very practical. They're all focused on yeah. how it's used. Yeah. Um, and that kind of that kind of logical consistency is is what really underlines great science fiction. The idea yes. that it's that it's something that is a lot of thought went into it and that the mm-hmm. viewer can put as much thought as they want into it and it'll and it'll it, it, it'll it'll still hold water. Yeah. And that's one of the reasons that I I'm a second generation trekker thanks to my mom. <laughs> she grew up watching the original series and I was watching reruns of it plus the movies and then next gen and all of that. My favorite race is the Klingons. Mm. Number 2 is the Vulcans. <laughs> Both kind of speak to different sides of myself. The Klingons, somebody actually, oh, Klingons are your favorite race? Okay, describe them in ten words or less. Pissed <laughs> off space-faring Celtic bikers with ridges. <laughs> <laughs> and I actually posted that on a forum uh, called The Empire, and it was Klingon-centric Star Trek forum. And everybody who responded was like, that was the most perfect description of a Klingon I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> And I've told people that later, and they're like, yeah, (laughs) it is. Vulcans are very logic-oriented, as we know. They're very highly intellectual, very thoughtful. Mm. (laughs) That's that's one of the things that that I like about the Vulcans, is they're very thoughtful. They're very intellectual. They're very, you know, they work things out... They they can and do think outside the box. They they made a sacrifice to increase their ability to apply their intellect towards learning and understanding, mm. not just gathering knowledge, but actually understanding. And that's one of the reasons I like Vulcans and why they appeal to me. So on the one side, you know, wild um, Celtic warrior, and on the other <laughs> side, the the intellectual, and that's me, <laughs> essentially. So one of the things I, I love about Star Trek is that it gives all of those civilizations more depth than just being yes. these two dimensional cutouts. Because obviously, here on Earth. There's no society that completely lives up to its own ideals. No. Um, there was, uh, although both societies claim to be about equality, neither the U.S. of the 50s nor the USSR had any equality at all inside of them. And so I, one of the things I adore is that, you know, for example, the warrior Klingons 
they do need doctors and engineers. Someone designed that compute that control panel that they're using. Someone had to assemble all those bits and pieces. So they have to use a great deal of justification to have that to to explain how their their engineers, doctors, scientists, pharmacists are somehow engaging in some sort of metaphorical war, somehow the, in spirit contributing to the war effort, and our, our warriors yeah. in a in a non-direct sense. And so there's a great deal of, of justification. They have to, they're necessarily a sophisticated society with many different strata and different interests, but because oh, yeah. they put so much importance on one particular profession, all other professions are seen through the lens of that one. And, mm -hmm. uh, and the Vulcans have a similar uh, thing. I, I think that my favorite way that they explored it was in the TV show Enterprise. One of the first times they ever explore it is in Journey to Babel in the original series, the idea that Vulcans obviously do have emotions and ideally they don't give in to the emotions, but sometimes they can have so much hubris that, they're, that they ignore the fact that they are actually experiencing an emotion. So Sarek is upset about the life choices that his son Spock has made. But he's not going to mm -hmm. say he's upset. He's going to pretend it's something logical because that would hurt his ego. In Enterprise, they did a great job of exploring that at a social structural level where they had a society that uh, practiced colonar and uh, uh, mind touches. And at the time, at that, you know, hundreds of years, hundred or so years before Kirk, at that time, it's considered taboo in Vulcan culture. And so it's about this, this hegemonic society that has there's a small group of of almost like religious clerics except that they've declared themselves non-religious but it's almost hypocritical because they're dictating how to interpret Surak's teachings to the population at a governmental level and yeah. actively oppressing people who are against their particular ideology and that was yeah. a phenomenal story arc because it showed that the society may be dictated by what could from the outside be seen as a simple law, no emotion, but in practice could become incredibly sophisticated. And oh, yeah. it, it really played with a lot of the, the nature of history. People, people don't sit around twirling their mustaches thinking, oh, I'm going to be villainous today. People have deeply <laughs> held beliefs, right? I mean, yep. but that's really some people think, you know, like, I, I, you know, I can't, some people really put like little Hitler mustaches on politicians they don't like. And, and, you know, as much as I, I wasn't a fan of George W. Bush, but holy shit, he had, he was nothing like Hitler. Uh, no. and, and even Hitler wasn't just like sitting around thinking about how he was going to mess with people. Right. Like, um, uh, look at some of the, some of the classic villains in Star Trek, for example, uh, my favorite, my personal favorite villain, Khan Noonien Singh. Yes. He is more, he is more a greatly misunderstood anti-hero. Everything mm. he did, every effort that he put into what he did was for the sake of his people and their survival. And when he went after Kirk in Rathacon, it was in vengeance for what he perceived as betrayal yeah. and abandonment by Kirk that caused the death of more than half of his own people, including his wife. His wife, yeah. Yep. And who, uh, who they, they kind of glossed this over. 
his wife was formerly a member of the Enterprise crew. This, this yes. the woman that yeah. So that's he didn't just send away Kirk. Didn't just send someone to her death whom he didn't know. He was her boss. She yes. was his responsibility. So yeah, and that's and uh, he abandoned and by Khan's perspective, Kirk abandoned them. Right, and literally and that's never that's checked the, on them. Never. Yeah. Looked in to see how they were doing. Seti Alpha Six, Seti Alpha Six exploded. Shifted Seti no Alpha Five's orbit. Nobody noticed. Nobody cared. Right. More than half of his people died, including her, who was one of Kirk's people. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so he was justified in his anger and his rage at Kirk. It, and uh... in Space Seed, when he originally attacked Kirk, he saw Kirk as a figure of that same authoritarian structure that used and then tried to slaughter his people and then sent them off to die in space. Yeah. And so he thought the same thing was going to happen again. And that's why he turned on Kirk, because he started to see, oh, he's like them. Right. And that's why he attacked. So if you look at things a bit from a different perspective, suddenly Khan isn't really all that bad of a guy. <laughs> well, and it, and it comes it comes to back to what we were talking about in the very beginning. It's about context, yeah. and it's about the social yep. forces that that move things. Because if you look at what Khan experienced leading up to becoming the leader of uh, of the world of the a third of the world, what he experienced was isolation, uh, mental torture. Uh, basically, uh, this ridiculously inflated sense of self. Uh, he was surrounded by people who had told him that he was made to do this thing. How could he ever believe anything else? Uh, and he was basically brainwashed into becoming an egomaniac. And it, it makes me think of things like I was watching a documentary the other day, uh, and it was the story of World War II told from the perspective of German soldiers who weren't Nazis. Mm-hmm. And basically, what what they'd been sold on. And the the fact is that the German economy was terrible and that it was largely due to the fact that France, among other allied nations, was extracting exorbitant amounts of money from the government that it then couldn't reinvest in its own people. So that led many people to want to do something about that. And the fact that there was a bandwagon to jump on just made it all the more easy. And, and so they, they weren't really thinking about the motivations of the people at the highest level. They weren't thinking about what was going to happen to the people at the lowest level. They were thinking about themselves. Uh-huh. And that's not, you can't really blame someone for thinking about themselves and acting on all of the information they have. Uh, right. And so with, with Khan, a great example of, of why he became the way he was was that he was never invested in the well-being of the rest of society. Being his isolated people. with his super – exactly. Being isolated with his super people, his, his ubermensch, with his people, the augments. Being isolated caused him to have a, 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 at least an us-and-them perspective, which then yes. allowed for a sense of superiority and callousness towards the suffering of others. And those that were not of his people. Right, and the fact that he, the fact the that he feels so, humans. yes, yes, the fact that he he feels so deeply for his people indicates that he had every opportunity to feel 
that way for everyone else, but was denied that opportunity. Mm-hmm. And so that's how there, there are monsters in history. We can look at history and we can find genuine human monsters, but no, there's no such thing as a baby that's a monster. No one was born with a knife in their hand or hate in their heart. Something yeah. happened to them. And even then, it's, it's, not, it's not like a one-to-one thing. Obviously, one person can, be, can, have, can have terrible things happen to them and not become a murderer. Someone else has yeah. the exact, identical things happen to them and they could become a murderer. But that, that doesn't change the fact that that person may never have become a murderer if it weren't for what happened to them. That something within them right. was operated upon, but it need not have been operated upon. Yeah. Going back to the cards, it all in perspective, look at how each card, look at how each person, look at how each item in the deck can be stacked in a particular way in the timeline to resolve to a completely different outcome. Right. And, and it kind of makes you look at history a little bit differently. Yeah. That's uh, the, the one of the abilities of the card is called control, which means mm-hmm. that... Nikola Tesla has every opportunity to be used for good. Mm-hmm. But if you control the events around him, you can use him for something that's, that's evil. Mm-hmm. So a large part of it is about controlling the context. And, uh, and I think that's, that's where we are in history. And that's what I really wanted to do with this, with this game is to, to make people aware of the fact that they can control the context, that we as a species can control what happens in our society and actually shape the experiences of people that come after us. Cause mm-hmm. I, like I said before, I'm standing on the shoulders of giants. If it weren't for Stan Lee, I wouldn't be where I am right now. If it weren't mm. for Gene Roddenberry, DC Fontana, if it weren't for these amazing creators, I wouldn't have the tools and skills I have to navigate the world the way I do. I've always felt the call to action. And now I want to spread that call. I want to I want to call as many people to action as possible to do everything they can in their everyday lives. Everything from painting more and singing more to buying a donut for someone on the street who can't afford it. There's so many things we can do every single day. Watch a documentary and legitimize the effort that people made to document reality. Mm-hmm. Read a, read a book, you know, just 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 reading it. Just reading the book validates everything that that person went through to make that book. All yes. these little things add up to a much bigger and more profound effect than any one of them. Yes. Definitely. And part of Nostalgiaverse is looking at what has shaped our imaginations over not just the course of our lives, but those who came before us and those who are coming after us get the stories look at the things that we grew up loving nostalgia is literally those things worthy of remembrance that's where it comes from and the things that we we look back on and think fondly of that's nostalgia and that's the basis of nostalgia verse and this brings that this game brings that into play quite uh <laughs> quite quite well and illustrates that uh not just history but in storytelling and there's so many just with one deck of cards here there's so many different stories that you can tell <laughs> just with a single deck of cards that you and your friends can sit down and go okay let's see what we can do this time 
And, <laughs> and, and then the more cards you more add more. to it, the more expansive the stories become. The more yeah, variety of stories <laughs> that you can tell. And that's one of the things that drew me to the Time Wars. Cards is just the potential for storytelling. Yeah, the, the corset humanity is all about mm -hmm. humanity. And then we're going to come out with corset vampire kind, and that's all about yep. the, the villains. And each uh, deluxe expansion, they're going to be smaller, yep. and they, they go into the, cor uh, the corsets. They focus more on a particular subsetting, a really individualized story. So I'm really excited about uh, this, uh, this one coming up, Z-Armor War. Uh, that's one that I've been working on the story of very intensely, and it is we, we get a little sneak preview of it. Uh, Noah Brown Eyes is a card in Corset Humanity. She is also the leader of the Z Armor Knights, and mm -hmm. so um, we're gonna so we're gonna find out who the rest of her teammates are, meet her villains, and and learn more about their story. It's I'm pretty excited about it. I don't want to I don't want to give anything away, but um, yeah. it's gonna be really exciting to see these characters finally come to life and have people engage with them. Yeah. It, looking forward to it. It sounds, <laughs> it sounds like it's going to be just a great system. Thank you. You know, just and, in and of itself and the more expand on it with additional sets and the stories, the books and, and so forth. This, this looks like it's going to become just by virtue of what it is and the way it's presenting. This looks to be, a very very cool thing and people i think will get really really into this <laughs> Thank uh, you. it's I'm just excited. a matter of getting the word out there and that's one of the reasons why you're here now absolutely and thank you so much for talking about this um thank you for having me how this came about for you and where you're going with it and i definitely i'm looking forward to seeing more of it thank you so much i've had a wonderful time <laughs> Alex? And on that note, we wish you good night. Good night. Take care. Thanks for listening. See you next time. <laughs>